Thank you for listening to a message from the Oak Haven Church. The following sermon was recorded during our Sunday morning worship service. We hope that this message will be helpful to you and encourage you to explore the Word of God. And now, this week's message. Jeremiah the prophet wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this was uh, after King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisha, son of Shaphan, and, J- and Jim Ariah, son of Hilkiah, Hil- Hilkiah, yes. When they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Jeremiah's letter said. <laughs> this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives, captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food the garden produces. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, is to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and will bring you home again to your own land. Thank you, Ann. I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't think that. I thought I cut out all the part with the really long names to get to the part that I really wanted her to read. So when she said to me this morning, okay, I looked the names up and you can listen to them on Google. And so I thought she did great. And I go with Carolyn's theory, which is say it like you know what you're talking about. And if somebody corrects you, well, good for them. But, you know, I thought she did great. 
It is amazing to see Bill and Linda Minerick and Joe and Beth Dilly today. I don't know when I've seen the Minerick's. It's been a while, other, on, other than on Facebook as they hike the Appalachian Trail and stuff like that. So it's awesome to have them here. Um, it's awesome to have Kayla. I'm sorry, Kai couldn't be here today. And little baby Mountjoy's here too. We can't see him yet, but he's here. So please stay with us afterwards to have a little cake and celebrate a little bit. Um, as you've heard, Larry is sick, so when Dewey told you last week that Larry would be here this week, he didn't know that he wouldn't be, so I'm not going to say he's going to be here next week, but I'm hoping he is. So, um, I used to spend a bit of time trying to help students understand the classic fallacies or false arguments that might be used in persuasion. You know, things like ad hominem, the attack on the man instead of the attack on the argument, or red herring arguments, which if you watch British Mysteries at all, you know what red herrings are, uh, or the slippery slope argument, which is also sometimes known as the camel's nose under the edge of the tent, which implies that eventually the whole camel will be in your tent if you don't stop this now. Well, another one that they had a hard time grasping was begging the question. I think because we misinterpret or we miss. Um, we misdefine begging the question sometimes, but begging the question is actually when a person makes a claim and then proceeds as though it's true and everybody ought to just agree with them and jump on board. And sometimes we do that with scripture. I might quote scripture and proceed to talk about it as though you're on board with my interpretation and I have no need to explain it or why I'm using it in a particular way. <laughs> so today we're gonna look at a few of those scriptures in hopes that we'll pause and reflect and in some cases even question the way we use certain familiar scriptures in a way that perhaps misrepresents them or simply limits them. We're going to zoom out a little. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Um, please open our hearts, open our minds to your scriptures. Fill me with the words that you want me to say and help me not get in your way. In your son's name I pray. Amen. I'm not here today to be a bubble buster, but... I want us to open our minds to the possibility that we've let some of our words in the Bible become about magnets and bumper stickers more than the larger context, part of a larger story. So we're going to zoom out and look at those verses that we might not be hearing in their entire context. A crowd favorite is the one we just read. When Anne finally got to the, I know the plans I have for you, you probably went, oh, good, yeah, it all turns out great. Well, actually, even though it says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, they are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. God, as John Lowe pointed out, plays the long game. This is a verse that first got me thinking about the way we quote some of these verses or stick them on magnets or bumper stickers. In our Bible, fellowship, Bible study fellowship group this spring, I discovered or rediscovered the truth of this verse. We isolate it and we quote it, and it sounds very encouraging, uplifting, and it is. But Jeremiah, God's prophet to his people in exile in Babylon, was actually delivering bad news, as you heard there. Their exile is not going to be short. It's going to be 70 years. And it's not one more than 69 and one less than 71. It's your lifetime. It's 70 years you're going to be gone. You're, you're out of here. You're not coming back, was basically what he was telling them. He tells them to settle in, build homes, plant gardens, raise families, and work for the peace and prosperity of your captors. Don't listen to the prophets and the fortune tellers who tell you you're not going to be here very long and you'll be home soon because you won't likely see the promised land again personally. But your children will and your grandchildren will. Jeremiah tells them God will come for his people and bring them home to the land he has given them, just as he brought his people home out of Egypt. 
The promise is about God's plan, God's promises being fulfilled, not individuals being saved as exiles. The individuals who turned from God and worshiped idols and allowed the intermarriage of God's people with pagans and refused to listen and follow God, they're suffering the consequences of their choices. God will not abandon them. They can live comfortably in Babylon, but they can't go home. And what, what prisoner doesn't want to go home? God will use captivity to turn their hearts back to him and to raise their children and grandchildren up to return to Jerusalem and restore it. God won't abandon them, but he won't abandon his plan or his promises. And he's a just God. So these people will pay for their sin and their children and grandchildren will be the ones to live the promise he makes in verse 14. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and I will bring you home again to your own land. In the meantime, the people will live in exile and their hope and their, for their future lies with their descendants. God did give them hope and a future, but they would remain captives from their homeland. The words we're familiar with, words of great encouragement, can motivate and inspire us. We just need to know that their greater meaning in context is that God fulfills his promises ultimately and shows love and mercy to those who wholeheartedly follow him and rest their hope in him. Another verse that we need to maybe zoom out and look at a little differently is Philippians 4.13, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. These words are written by Paul in a book about joy. They are also written by a man who's being held in chains in prison, not knowing that on any, not knowing any given day he could, or knowing that any given day he could be put to death for preaching about Jesus. This verse doesn't promise victory in the human sense. It doesn't promise we'll be comfortable or come out on top or that our enemies will be defeated on this earth. Paul is talking about our ability to endure hard circumstances and harsh conditions like he had to suffer in order to glorify God. Paul knows that God will give us strength to do the only thing we need to do, which is follow God. Glorify him, even if, even if we have to do without, even if we have to go hungry. Paul trusts God's promises. He writes about his life looking at it from God's viewpoint, through God's lens. Paul focuses on his purpose, not what he wanted in this life. He was grateful and focused on the eternal. He knew what his power source was, like we talked about in Bible class this morning. We want comfort. We need God. Paul knew the difference, and, he gave all he, and that gave him all he needed to feel the joy of Christ and Christ's strength to endure whatever lay ahead to show God's glory. While you may hear athletes quote this or see it on a billboard or on Steph Curry's shoes, be wary of how it's used. Paul was playing the long game. He knew that his troubles were passing in the bigger picture of God's eternal plan. Paul knew that God would sustain him, and he boasted of God's goodness and mercy. Paul here calls us to be content and trust the path that God has ahead of us. We, and Paul, can truly do anything knowing that. Romans 8.28 is sometimes called the Pollyanna Gospel. That's the verse, of course, that reads, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I think Reggie White had that painted on his tractor, didn't he, Royce? I think I remember that. But I'm going to believe that Reggie White knew the secret to this verse. It's not, hey, aren't you lucky the team cut you because now look where you're at? Or, hey, aren't you lucky your house burned down because it was built on top of a gold mine? Nope. Paul, again, is showing us the long game. God works in every single thing to fulfill his plan, his goal, his glory, the restoration of his creation. 
Paul acknowledges that those who follow God wholeheartedly are free from the condemnation of the law because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's not intended to be a band-aid for every wound or guarantee of positive outcomes. It's not about a single instance or event in my life. It's so much bigger. Not everything will go the way we think we'd like it to. As the Bible tells us, it rains on the just and the unjust. Again, John Lowe reminded us just a few weeks ago, God's game is forgiveness, not fairness. So in the end, those who love God and are called according to his purpose will join him in the restored kingdom. But don't be looking for a lottery win here. That's not the reward you ultimately seek. We're going to become more like Christ's image, not a painless process. But God works in our deepest sufferings and uses all things to draw us to him and to his glory. Still with me? Hang in there. I'm not asking you to go home and take the magnets off the fridge. In fact, leave them and buy more. I'm just saying we need to think about listening for a different message than the one many in the world may be asking us to hear. The word of God is good news always. It's a big message. Zoom out and hear it all. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, The temptations of your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This verse is often just flat-out misquoted as God won't give you more than you can handle. The problem with that is it leaves no room for faith. God seems to specialize in allowing us to face more than we can handle. Notice I don't say gives us more than we can handle. Remember where the rain falls? We all face trouble and trials, and by all I include Moses, David, Esther, Ruth, Mary, Paul, and a bunch of other Bible big shots. Remember Job? Think back to Philippians 4.13. The glory of the Lord is the source of our strength, just as it was for Paul and others. But let's look at what the verse actually says. The temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, and he resisted. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He quoted scripture, and God sent angels to attend him. Jesus actually spoke to Satan, telling him to go away and leave him alone. Try that. I've tried it. Works. God will show you a way, as he did Jesus. As the saying goes, though, you gotta wanna. God will help you, but he's not gonna swoop in and snatch you away from situations you shouldn't put yourself in in the first place. He will give you strength to stand and fight, but you have to arm yourself for battle through prayer and other spiritual disciplines. The Spirit of God will help us recognize the people and the situations that tempt us. Pray for the Spirit to show you what to pursue and what to run from, to help keep your eyes open to seeking and finding ways to glorify God. We seem to stumble into sin so often because we aren't on alert. We don't know, quote, the bridges you've crossed till you've crossed them, as the line in the musical Wicked goes. Pray this spirit will help us recognize the light and the right path to follow. Ask God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? And trust him to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from the evil one. One final verse to consider. Psalm 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Consider this. If we commit our hearts to God and take joy and delight in all that he has created and planned for us, if we entrust all we have in him, in his control, to his plan, he will change our heart's desires. So we will have all we have 
we will have all we desire, which is God himself, and we will be content in his love. Because the truth is, it does us no good to, ask to go to God to ask him for the things we think we want. We know there's nothing we can desire that will make us happy or content except God. The more you delight in yourself, the more you delight yourself in the Lord, the more your heart will reflect the heart of God. Okay, that's enough bubble busting for one day. I'm not saying these interpretations are the be-all and end-all of any of these verses. They're interpretations by various Bible scholars who have studied the bigger picture and given their opinions on these passages. What I am saying is that we should all be alert to the way we let any of God's messages be shaped by the world around us. Zoom out. How do we study? How do we read? How do we quote scripture? There's some easy tools and reminders that I know we all probably use already. Read with an open heart. We need to ask the best teacher there is, the best teacher we have, the Holy Spirit, to guide us and let us and help to guide us and let studying God's word transform us rather than simply support what we think we already know. Find a Bible translation we can easily read and understand. I found a great study Bible last year. It's in chronological order, which makes it kind of hard because there's two verses from this chapter and then three verses from that chapter. It kind of jumps around, but it's really opened my eyes to the way things fit together. Compare your Bible translation to the other Bibles as you study. Use other reference books. Broaden the explanation of passages and scriptures by reading the essays and books of established scholars. Do all that with the knowledge that, just like the articles I read on the passages we looked at today, that's the conclusion that that scholar has drawn based on their own study. So keep digging. Zoom out. Look at the passages in the context of history, politics, culture, who's speaking, who's being spoken to, in the context of the entire story of God. Look for themes. Look for characters who are similar or the same. Look for quotes. I used to teach my students students that a speaker should always begin by asking the question, who's my audience and who, what's my purpose? We need to ask that when we read the Bible. What's, who's the audience? What's the purpose? What does the author, author want the audience to know and understand? Does he want to change or reinforce behavior or attitudes? John flat out tells us his purpose in the last line of his gospel. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. You may find other authors don't quite state their purpose that clearly. You may have to dig a bit, but that's an example. Finally, ask ourselves what we should ask ourselves, what it means to us today in our life, in our family, in our town, in our neighborhood. The so what, I like to call it. Ed always says, what does this mean to me on the ground in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in, 19, in 2023? Sit with that. Scripture doesn't change, but we do. It may mean something more, something different to you today than it did a year ago or five years ago or before kids or before your diagnosis or your marriage or before the grief or the joy that you're sitting in today. And then ask, how do I apply this message to my internet interaction with the next person I encounter? How do I apply the meaning of the passage to my walk with God? Our look at these passages today is, for, is good food for thought, maybe somewhat challenging, but hopefully reading with open ears to hear some Bible scholars offer different ways of looking at some familiar verses. The Bible is a rich work, full of wonderful and terrifying stories, beautiful and hero, her, horrific scenes, gracious and cruel people. 
Everything works together to bear witness to the story that God is and has been writing from the beginning, a love story that will, in the end, restore justice and mercy to all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life you've given to each of us. We ask that you show us constantly the best way for us to live it, and we ask your forgiveness when we stray from your guidance. We ask that you always bring us back to your path. Teach us to ask the right questions. Help us to love better. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way to live and your spirit to help us move forward in that way. We ask your mercy and grace in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. And now we invite you to stay for cake for baby Mountjoy. So there's some back there. Help yourself. Help, or we'll, we'll help you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Oak Haven Church. We're located at 2175 Witzel Avenue in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. To hear previous podcasts, visit our website at oakhavenchurch.net.